Welcome to Empowered Returns, a show that surfaces forward-thinking real estate advice that investors and developers need to help them invest smarter and build better. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Empowered Returns. I am P.T. Weinberg, founding partner here at Charles Gate, and I am very happy to have Jay Hirsch, the managing partner of Jumbo Capital Incorporated, here with us today. Jay, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. Um, so let's just kind of jump right in. So you founded Jumbo in 2009. This, this feels like an SNL skit. Kind, kind of. of? Like, we're talk about sweaty balls. Maybe. maybe I mean, we kind of both have that Chris Farley. It's got thing an going NPR on. studio vibe in here. <laughs> oh man. Well, well, we'll we'll have some fun with this, but we also, you know, we gotta gotta inform the audience. We'll talk about all things Jumbo. Okay. And um, you Love know, it. and and uh, real estate design development here. So you founded Jumbo in '09. Uh, you had been at a couple of kind of bigger institutional shops prior to that. Kind of give us the backstory on on how Jumbo came to be. Sure thing. Uh, I named it after my alma mater, Tufts University. Um, we used to sit around and drink beers and do other fun stuff and talk about how. Uh, there were a bunch of guys that were already doing internships in real estate and uh, a couple engineers as well. So we were like, maybe one day we'll start like a real estate firm. We'll call it like Jumbo Commercial or something. And uh, so when it was time for me to leave my uh, previous job, I took the name and ran with it. There so, you go. Yeah, so prior to Jumbo, I worked at New Boston Fund. It was a private equity fund. Um the founders were like some pretty heavy hitters in Boston at the time. Yeah, kind of created uh, urban redevelopment and urbanization. Uh, the Rappaports learned a lot from them. It was uh, it was an awesome environment to uh, kind of skin my teeth, and they had a great open door policy, and way too many people working there. So it's you could just walk around and pick pick all these smart people's brains. The head guy just kind of liked to collect, you know, people to work with. Yeah. Uh, so it was it was awesome. It cool. was like getting a master's. Um, but I would say I thought I was going to be a lifer there. Yeah. But then they sent me to like some some market. I want to say I went to like New Jersey and I met an operator and I was like, "What is this operator thing?" And uh, it was all like the joint venture people they would partner with. I thought kinda, you were going to say that they sent you to Jersey and that just puts you over the edge. Oh yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> And um, shot at I got, ex- take it I got exposed to the <laughs> operators, and I was like, I want this job because it's like all the fun parts of commercial real estate without the uh, like corporate, you know, bullshit of like working within the fund. Yeah. And I kind of made a plan at that point where I was like, you know, how many transactions do I have to get under my belt? How many square feet? How many types of deals? You know, before I feel comfortable. Uh, leaving and doing this on my own. And I don't think I ever got to those totals. Uh, Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns like, collapsed. And <laughs> the world is a different place. And after uh, going out for lunch one day, I came back, they fired like 25 people. And I was like, okay, well, I survived that one. And like a month later, I came back, they fired like another 25 people. And I was like, okay, maybe we should start thinking about like Act Two. Um, so I looked. Uh, I looked and found a deal that I'd been uh, working on for a while, and I put yeah. a, put an offer in under New Boston Funds, but they had no intention whatsoever of buying it. And 
I hired a lawyer from inside the firm to help me with the purchase and sale agreement. He was a super religious guy. He would go to church every day at lunch. Every day at lunch? Yeah. Wow. And I didn't know that. And within like two days of helping me with this thing, he ratted me out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You got to do a little more recon if you're yeah. going to try that. So at that point, they were like, guess what? The next phase of uh, layoffs is starting now, and you're the first casualty of the <laughs> Oh, no way. Three. So that was it? Yeah. Well, they gave me like a severance package and like some time. And I got like, I finally got like a corner office for yep. like my final month there. Okay. And uh, that was kind of the start of Jumbo. Nice. So it was a freezer warehouse, still own it. Uh, it's been a great asset. And I was gonna say, like, we'll get into that later. But you got to have like a favorite asset. That's what, my you, favorite. Is yeah. it? That's it. Totally. All right. So we'll yeah. jump. We'll, so, and then is it because it was the first? Because it's the first. It's absolute triple net. I don't have to do anything for it. Yeah. It just, it just cash flows. <laughs> right. It's been a really good deal. So I, that's actually a pretty good segue, right? Like yeah. I think you're very unique, at least you know, uh, from my perspective in that, that Jumbo, you are very unique as a person. Thank you. Yeah. Jumbo is very unique because you guys are really diversified in the different asset classes you're in. I mean, yep. a lot of the other people in our local marketplace, and, and at least it, it seems like all your assets are Massachusetts. That's correct. So as I was yeah. at New Boston Fund, they yep. would like send me all over the country and okay. I would parachute into a market for like 48 hours and I'd have to be the expert of the market. Yeah. That doesn't kind of realized over time that I was just the dumb out of town money. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then another kind of epiphany moment happened for me is uh, the Rappaports used to donate a ton of money to uh, the Federal Reserve like research grant. So down in Boston is the Federal Reserve Bank. Yeah. Okay. By like Nebo or whatever. Right. Um, and they used to have um, lecture series. So the reports like would donate money for these lecture series. And this one lecturer came in one time and he was talking about how like Massachusetts kind of had an island economy um, where housing prices were going to continue to rise. Cost of living would keep rising. Um, the the workforce become more stratosphere to like you know advanced degree people and be harder for um, you know workforce you know housing you know right. type of occupants yeah. and stuff yeah and he was spelling out how this is kind of like a bad scenario for mass and I could kind of envision what he's talking about and it made sense but for real estate investing it sounded like a pretty really good, really good, good scenario. scenario right I was like wait there's high barriers to entry and people willing to overpay huh. <laughs> yeah. So, um, with big you know, jobs those two kind of moments right. kind of yeah. like solidified my investment thesis, which is really just Massachusetts. Like, yeah, okay. You know, I live it, breathe it, work it every day. I've never left the Commonwealth. Right. Um, so it's kind of easy for me to understand all these different product types as long as it's here in Mass. Okay. Like, so a lot of the clients we work with are strictly multifamily yeah. or, you know, in other arenas that, you know, we're not involved in day to day, like industrial. Or retail or office, but you guys are—you you guys have a wide cross section of assets. And can you talk a little bit about that? And you know, was that part of the the the, the strategy going in mm -hmm. um, when you decided to create Jumbo, or did that kind of evolve naturally? What are you going after now? What won't you touch? Well, well sure. I don't want to keep. Uh, we'll ask um, some questions one at yeah, a time. Yeah, a lot of questions there. I'm yeah, do my best there. I know you're a tough guy, so like you should be able to process <laughs> all that quickly. Yeah, so I mean, my exposure to all the range of asset class happened kind of early in my life. Um, my mom and dad started a generic pharmaceutical company in Quin or uh, excuse me, Southie, 
And so growing up, I spent a ton of time in these uh, pharmaceutical plants. So it's like you might know them as CGMP facilities now. So it was just, you know, working packaging lines. And, um, you know, I would, that was my summer vacation a lot of times. So I would just spend, you know, the whole vac break, you know, working and making money. And um, I loved it. I was kind of always wanted to, like, be next to my parents. I, I was always kind of a shy kid. So, yeah. It kind of worked. Like they'd be like, "You want to go to camp or work on the packaging line?" I was like, "No brainer, packaging line." <laughs> um, but you know, I learned a ton, and um, I got exposed to these you know cool manufacturing facilities, and um, that's still like my favorite part of the real estate I do is learning about like these tenants and these industrial processes and stuff. So I always kind of had like the industrial side. Um, my mom and dad were successful, but Southie was a dump back then. And uh, with the extra cash flow they were making, they would start buying triple deckers. Oh wow! Okay. So me and my mom would show up at an auction for a triple decker in, in Southie, in like you know tough neighborhood in Southie that like Whitey Bulger's probably like created some bad publicity for. Right. And it would just be like my mom in the bank, you know, bidding on you know a triple decker for fifty k. Um, so when I wasn't in the packaging line, I was like helping them, you know, rehab or you know flip these things. Um, and at one point, we probably had like 30 of them. Oh, wow. Uh, fortunately, my parents, they love real estate, but they're not very good at it. So it's like <laughs> my mom and dad were like, it's just too much to deal with. We're selling them all. That was like 20 years ago. Uh, too bad Charles Gates was just getting started. Yeah, I mean, we totally. could have just taken uh, over managing. Looking that. back on it, I was like, why we could have hire that, a guy? We could have been run the triple net guys. You <laughs> totally. know, we could have been your, your refrigeration warehouse for them. Yeah. Just, yeah, um, right. and then after they got in the triple deckers, they got into marinas. So oh, it's like I had okay. um, they bought a marina in Hingham that was like a World War II shipyard. So it yeah. was like fifty acres with like thirty buildings on it. So, so you're moving on up, right? I like Southy Industrial, right into the boats. I was a terrible dock in, um, <laughs> but I was really good at like you know carpentry, like plumbing, electrical stuff. So I hang out with all like the facilities guys and yeah. like further honed my craft. Okay. And then uh, after college, that's when I got involved at New Boston Fund and kind of helped me understand the finance side. So I always kind of knew like the product types, the operations of it. And then, you know, New Boston helped me kind of understand how to capitalize them and how it all works with your lenders and your, your partners. Cool. Actually, that's a pretty good segue because I want to talk about some kind of that's, memorable that's projects. Two good segues if yeah. people are paying attention. I know. At home. I like that word. It's a great word. Um, Let's talk about the Hingham Shipyard. Sure. Right. That that was kind of cool because it encompassed a lot of different asset, asset classes within it. Yeah. Obviously, it sounds like it started back, you know, when you were a kid and they acquired that as I'm, I'm deducing yeah, I that that was, was sort of like, the origin I, of it. I stopped working at the pharmaceutical plants when I was like 17 and started working at the shipyard. Yeah. Um, even though we probably owned it a couple of years before that. Okay. And that was, uh, that was, Crazy transaction because it was my parents had to uh, assemble like six different sites over like a decade, and then do uh, a mixed use development, entitling it in like the most NIMBY place in Massachusetts, Hingham. We love it, but like they're tough, you know, tough with their zoning bylaws and yep. whatnot. Yeah, and then further complicating it was the MBTA uh, commuter boat going through there, so that had to, you know, they had to have a, an appropriate size parking lot for commuter boat and you know doing all the land swaps and all the entitlement 
Um, you know, that took probably like 10 years. So my parents, when they first got into it, they thought they'd be, you know, in and out of this thing in three years. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's 30 years later, we still own it and still like there's stuff to do with it. So, yeah. So, what is like, what is the talk a little bit about the more recent history of it over the past decade and then sure, yeah. what, what, what's on the horizon there? Um, we uh, entitled, I don't know, probably like 300 units of housing. It was like 286,000 square feet of uh, retail. It's probably 60,000 square feet of office. So, it is true mixed use. Uh, the housing is for sale and um, for rent. You know, we divested all the land and all the permits and just held on to the marina and a couple extra parcels. And uh, my my favorite claim to fame is my parents brought in five liquor licenses. So that was that was kind of cool as well. Sure, there are a lot um, of grateful people in Hingham. Yeah, yeah, and they yeah. get good use out of them. And good. Yeah, it's been a fun project. Uh, what are a couple other? Deals that you've done that kind of stand out to you as memorable, besides obviously your first one there and the shipyard. Um, I really enjoy the development stuff. Yeah. Uh, I look at that kind of more tactical. Um, in this part of the economy, you know, maybe probably should be less development, but you know, I think most of the development will be focused on housing. You know, the the state definitely has a shortfall of of uh, housing units. So. Yep. I could, you know, I think we'll still see some tower cranes driving around, but definitely not for like office space, unfortunately. But yeah, a memorable one. Our first deal together that went really well. In, oh yeah, in Austin. yeah, Penniman. Yeah. Um, that was kind of my first foray into the for sale housing, and luckily I had a good good broker to <laughs> liquidate the assets and uh, yeah, make some was, good returns for everybody. Good, yeah, that was a that was a fun one. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about Jumbo itself, right? Sure. You're obviously the fearless leader, and I will say, um, you know, I, I mean, I kind of have to pump your tires because you're on our podcast right now. But okay. but I gotta say, like, you've got great people. First of all, like everyone that works at Jumbo has been absolutely awesome to deal with over the years, and the retention's been super high. Like, I can't really remember anyone that I've worked with that's you know not still there, right? They're mm-hmm. all there. Um, so how much of your day-to-day and <clears throat> how much focused are you putting on just building that kind of culture where you have that kind of retention and that kind of loyalty and, and people that, you know, really love working for, for you and for, for the firm? Yeah, I mean, so me personally, I don't think I'm like anything special. I think I have a really good memory and yeah. I can recognize a good idea. So I, I stole New Boston Fund's ideas on, you know, how to organize it you know, um, what type of services we would provide and how to how to create a good culture. Yeah. Um, so we're, you know, totally vertically integrated. We do all our own property management. We do our own accounting. We do our own construction management. We can handle all the acquisition, the finance activity. Um, so we feel like it yields a better product for the tenants, yields a better investment for the investors, uh, yields a better partner for the lenders. Uh, so, you know, I think that kind of philosophy trickles down. But at the end of the day, and whenever someone's hired, uh, I, you know, make it known to them, I just want what's best for them in life. I, you know, if not working here is, you know, the best outcome for them, then that's totally cool. Uh, you know, luckily we'll get to work together for a while, but, you know, at the end of the day, 
you only really have one advocate for yourself in life, and that's yourself. And um, so, you know, just trying to kind of create it as a uh, fun, uh, knowledge, you know, based environment where, um, you know, I'm not really watching the clock on people or grinding them on their hours as long as they're getting the, the their deliverables done. And, yeah. Um, you know, that seems to resonate with people. Pre-pandemic, I kind of put in a flex policy idea. Yeah. I got it from Cambridge Savings Bank, though, because oh, okay. they, uh, they kind of educated me about it. And I was like, oh, that sounds like a good idea because, like, you know, my employees keep telling me, like, hey, I'm going to fly to San Francisco on Tuesday. Is it okay if I work on the plane the whole time and don't count it as a vacation day? And I was like, uh, that's kind of a gray area. <laughs> It's a but solid six hour flight. Now we though. call it a flex day. Okay. And that definitely uh, has helped post pandemic for sure. Yeah. So everyone has like three weeks of flex days. You still have uh, that like hidden golf simulator in the wall? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, that helps. Yeah. Definitely. How's your um, golf game these days, by the way? It's still terrible. Is it? Yeah, yeah, mine too. I stink. It's fine. Whatever. It is fine. I haven't even played yet this year. Do you know that? Wow. I know. That's June terrible. 7th. And I have wow. not played a round of golf. Isn't that brutal? Yikes. Uh, Hopefully you're selling units though. Right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so what's the biggest challenge facing the real estate industry overall today? I know you kind of made an inference earlier about, you know, office being tough, but yeah. um, you know, again, any particular asset classes that you're sort of gung ho about right now, others that you've just kind of stepped away from and, and what are the challenges as you're trying to, you know, put deals together either as a buyer or, or, or potentially as a seller on any of your, your existing assets? Yeah, I mean we are in a funky little spot um kind of going back to an earlier question of how like i came across all the product types initially it was kind of like finding the deals that i could do so i could build the track record out and a lot of those were office spaces and early on and uh, i'm a huge fan of the office i go there every day i love it um it's fun it's productive it's you know good way to get out of the house as well um, but you know, my mom was always like artificial intelligence and telecommuting. Like, are you concerned with those things at all? And, you know, I kind of was, so always, I'd say like four years ago, we kind of stopped buying as much office and focused more on industrial spaces, maker spaces, flex type of spaces, manufacturing spaces. Uh, spaces that you couldn't replicate in your basement or your garage. Okay. Um, and that's kind of what drew me into real estate in the first place. Like, I really love learning about tenants and their technology and their process and, you know, being a partner and helping them, you know, realize those those dreams. Yeah. Um, and a, a good landlord really is a good partner. Um, yeah. So yeah, no. I mean, we talk about it that all the time. I think that's the way you got to approach every relationship you're in, right? Totally. With, with yeah, I always say to tenants, right. I'm not winning unless you're winning. You let me know what I can do to like help yeah. you get the most out of your space. So it's yeah. a real like asset for you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I mean, we just kind of did less office space, um, and then the economy was a good spot where we felt like tactically we could do some development deals. So we did some of those, but. You know, right now it's tough. I'm kind of at a loss. Uh, we recently bought, bought some retail, and I feel really good about it. But 
you know, every day I come home, my wife's like ordering Peapod and, you know, it's people aren't going to the supermarket. I'm worried about, you know, right. Um, you know, Apple just introduced new VR headsets. Like you're going to have to, you know, that's going to eliminate some real estate demand somewhere. I bet. Right. Yeah. I, um, I saw that the other day, you know, Amazon, I wonder like how many square feet of actual retail does Amazon destroy and how much like square feet of industrial do they create? Does that create? Right. It's like <laughs> they eliminate like a thousand square feet and it creates like one square foot of actual warehouse. We get to know what that ratio is. Yeah, that's a good um, that's an interesting one. So yeah, I mean I'd say the asset classes, it's not, you know, I'm definitely no Nostradamus here, but you know, Again, I still like the uh, the maker type spaces. Um, you know, the world has a lot of kind of headwinds, and you know we're gonna have to engineer some solutions for stuff. And I think Massachusetts is a very well positioned state to help kind of engineer those solutions. Um, so during the pandemic, you know, the life science community went bananas. That's definitely cooling off, but those types of user groups are still looking for. Uh, the same type of space that other user groups um, that are manufacturing better batteries now, uh, metallurgic printing, um, you know, so, uh, solar panels, you know, all these these new techs that we kind of need to maybe combat climate change and engineer a solution, or uh, you know, we're going to benefit from all the uh, infrastructure money that you know has recently been passed. So yeah, so. We, you know, there's still definitely a lot of tenants walking around out there looking for good productive space, but um, it's definitely it's different than it was like 24 months where everything was just like white hot. Right. You know? Yeah. Totally. Totally. What's uh, is there anything that uh, you're very adamant about that you think the vast majority of people in our industry would not would disagree with you on? Um. Putting you on the spot on this one, but I, I like this question. So I'm not like a huge contrarian, you know. I love real estate, but it's not rocket science. It's heavily correlated to the Federal Reserve and their funds rate. Right. And when those are low, those you know real estate asset values appreciate. <laughs> when those are high, values erode. Yeah. Um. You know, again, just kind of going back to the the housing shortfall. I, you know, I'm, I'm bullish on that. Uh, I'm also well aware of, you know, the silver tsunami coming towards us in terms of uh, our aging population. Yeah. Every day, I think it's like ten thousand Americans turn eighty. And my dad will be eighty in a couple weeks. Yeah, and that's not even we're not even at the apex of it. Like right. I guess in like six years it'll be like twenty thousand. Oh wow! So, you know, having having some elderly parents that I love and take care of and. You know, I, I definitely like that's reminding me kind of every day, like, you know, there needs to be more product to kind of help them. Yeah. Um, one of my uh, uncles in law was talking about how he's converted a couple houses out in San Fran into like mini assisted living facilities where he rents them out by the bedroom. So I was like, that's not a bad idea. So I'm doing a little research on that. I get, you know, Sammy mentioned it to you, but we got, I've got, you got to come see that that one property we have for that. Yeah, I think that might not be a bad idea. No, it'd be sick for that place. So, yeah, and it's um, not mini either. So yeah, it could be pretty cool. 
Um, yeah, we'll talk about that offline. Where do you see Jumbo going in the next year, three, five? What's your kind of goal for for the goals for the company and 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 you know, hmm. um, you personally and yeah, I'm not like a big kind of five year plan guy. Okay, you know, I, I look at the market as a river. Um, I can't really make sellers, um, so it's just kind of fishing along the river and waiting for that that deal to float by that you really like and have a lot of conviction for and doing your best to kind of pull it onto the shore. Um, so I'd say my vision for the next five years is kind of the status quo. Uh, I'm not going to be the biggest landlord in Boston. I don't really want to be. Um, you know, I like my spot. At, I think I'm at 17, so hopefully I can maintain that and, you know, exit some some of the deals and make some good returns and find some new ones and, you know, hopefully get them on a good basis. Nice. Um, so, you know, you, you obviously mentioned the diversification of your your asset classes, and then we've talked a little bit about the current challenges in the market between just the capital markets in general, rates. You know, I think you guys are pretty uniquely positioned in that you have the ability to pivot where mm-hmm. maybe you, you've gone into a deal thinking one thing, and now as as you know, the climate's changed. You've got the, you're nimble enough to go in a different direction. Kind of, can you speak to that as far as anything you have going on currently, or is that kind of a component of how you're approaching deals right now, given all the volatility that's out there? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, that's being able to be nimble is like a necessity because, you know, every deal I have changes in some way, shape or form. Um, you know, and that's kind of informed how we've, you know, gone after some deals you know we typically want a big big site that's you know flexible in nature and can accommodate a variety of different uses and that allows you to be the most competitive with the tenants that are out there because you don't always know like what industry is going to be you know still operational and what industries are kind of getting folded up um so you know that kind of helps you know, mitigate the risk of just kind of owning some of these asset classes for sure. Nice. Um, now, as far as sort of the capital market specifically, how has that changed, you know, some of your value prop to investors or the perception that your investors are bringing as they examine, you know, potential deals that you guys are doing and, and, and how is that, how significantly has that changed over the past year? I would say for new deals, like you can have like maybe an easier value proposition scenario where it's like, okay, I've bought cash flow. My financing is good, not great, because you know just where we're at in the market. But you know, in the next three or five years, I can forecast, you know, with pretty good confidence that rates will come in, and maybe there's a a refinance scenario where, you know, the the same revenue I'm generating at the same asset can yield a better cash flow because uh, you can shrink the, the financing costs with a, a lower interest rate. Uh, on existing deals where you have the benefit of you know low interest rates, there's definitely for sure some pressure to uh, maintain and increase NOI. And um, you know there's definitely going to be some challenges for sure. Um, you know, it's not hard to envision the, these urban doom loop scenarios that you keep right. reading about. Yeah, and um, you know, I, it's you know, there's definitely going to be some blood on the street. I think for sure. Uh, hopefully, 
Hopefully, I don't have too much of my blood let out, but um, you know, I definitely have right. an asset or two where uh, you know it's got a good interest rate that's just gonna mature at some point, and you know, NOI is definitely taking a hit given the pandemic and uh, you know, telecommuting and artificial intelligence and stuff. Yeah. So it's like we either need the government to kind of step in to bail out some of these assets. Um, which I got to imagine they're thinking about, like, you know, downtown New York, who owns these massive, uh, you know, office towers? Right. You know, with, it's like with, with pension funds yep. and life insurance companies. Yeah, with and, uh, very low rates that are yeah. maturing very soon. The, and the yeah. fallout of that could be like, have a real contagion effect. Yeah. Um, and it's not a blue versus a red state thing. Every state, in the country, has it, people have invested billions of dollars into their urban core, right? And you know, people are holding like all sorts of financial institutes holding those paper that paper. Like, what's going to happen to it? So, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think that that's definitely the the biggest macro variable facing the real estate industry, and how much that will trickle down into other areas. And again, like you know, you had mentioned earlier. Back to your uh, Rappaport lecture there, but love, mm-hmm. Massachusetts is pretty insulated, but you know not bulletproof. No, you know, yeah. and that's uh, you know something that I think we're starting to see in these little sort of you know micro anecdotes where, like, yeah, we are fundamentally in a phenomenal place to do business, but ultimately nothing is nothing is invincible. And, and, totally, you know, you've got to be ready. The burbs are kind of better positioned. Um, yep. The office users, I kind of break it down into three cohorts. You know, you have the fresh out of college guys they and girls. They need the office to be mentored and trained, and they get a lot of their social life from the office. And we all have fond memories of, you know, going to the bar after work and, you know, sipping a few cold ones with your coworkers and, you know, maybe falling in love. Uh you know, and then the next cohort's like me and you. Right. Um, we need to train people and need to mentor people. Uh, we are productive in the office because we have kids at home that kind of really shrink your window. Suck of, the life out of us. Window of opportunity to work. Yeah. Or, um, <laughs> you know, shrink your actual physical space to do the work. Yes. So it's like we still get a lot of the office, but like you want to be an active, involved parent. So it's right. like you don't need to be there all the time. And then the last cohort is like the empty nesters. Like they have boats, they have pools, they have country club memberships, they have second homes. They don't need to, you know, get trained by anyone, and they probably don't want to train anyone. And all they kind of like about the office is, you know, maybe once a week to help them kind of do some minor paperwork stuff, and you know, they just love the memories of it. Right. You know, so when you kind of factor all those. Those three user groups, like I just see shrinking in of demand for sure. Yeah, and yeah. you know it's like probably sixty five percent of the footprint we need it. Right, but if you work five minutes away from your house and it's not a big commute and parking's easy and cheap and you know there's a good deli that you like around the corner, a simulator or something. Right, then you'll probably still go in there. Yeah, me personally, when I look at my business, it's only my my. My overhead is my payroll. Right. It's like, you know, 95% of it. My, 
you know, occupancy costs is only like 3% of my overhead. Yep. So it's like, I can't rationalize spending that much in overhead on payroll and then not really having a place for all these people to work and collaborate. Right, right. And, you know, help them in the system, but also, you know, make sure that they're staying focused and stuff. So I think if those ratios are good and it's convenient enough, there will still be demand for it and use for it but like we got overhang just looking at your background here like that's a lot of office space that you might not need right and that's the most annoying office space to get to like right. it's expensive to occupy can't park it's expensive to get to it's expensive to eat lunch in there um takes forever to get to you know you got to ride crowded elevators and stuff yeah. and uh you know so i really am nervous about like downtown course the other thing is that's helped in the burbs is stuff has been converted uh stuff has been converted you know to retail uh stuff has been converted to life science stuff has been converted to flex type of spaces um it's easier to kind of envision those adaptive reuses in the burbs than it is for you know a real tall tight little site and you know the urban core. Right. So, um, you know, it's going to take a, a real creative group of people to kind of figure out the next 20 years, I think, and, you know, not having just empty, abandoned ghost buildings. So not to get too depressing. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, that the reality is that's a pretty accurate assessment. And, yeah. you know, I think there's always cities are cities, right? There's always going to be a demand to be in the city, work in the city. Yeah. I just think that as things are evolving, to your point, that demand's going to be less than it, yeah. than it was. And that's a fact. And then it's just how do you reposition some of these assets in a way that, um, you know, still makes them viable. Real estate investing, like when your expectation of returns or is sticky. Right. Right. So if you were expecting 20s, you're still expecting 20s. Right. I have a site in Boston. It's a one acre site in Post Office Square. You know, I could put a 60 story tower there, but right. like, what is it going to be of is the question. Right. When we bought the thing, we were like, oh, office, no, no brainer. Right. Now. And now it's like, ee. Yeah, that's not happening. Um, yeah. And then I'd love to do multifamily there, but right. the what I have to build it to, I can't like finance it to. Right. So right. You know, I'm one of those guys that wants to have a shovel-ready project. So I, you know, I am trying to find someone to help me entitle it. Right. But you know, at the end of the day, no one, everyone's kind of projecting out like in five years, this right. will be cool. Right. You know. Uh, unless you've raised a fund and you have like all this cash burning in a, ho- a hole in your pocket, like right. you know, you're going to be kind of patient. And I've noticed that as well on the tenant side. The tenants that are like, you know, have the big balance sheet and you know have a going concern, and um, you know, they're pausing. They're not investing new capital. You know, the startup tenants that are trying to either advance their tech or get to commercialization that raise all this money and have the cash just burning, um, they're still full steam ahead. So luckily we're able to kind of captivate those types of tenants in this marketplace. Uh, And then there's, you know, a whole set of tenants that were getting funding before and now, like, no one 
everyone wants yield with their cash. No one wants like value add upside on right. on the you know the equity side. So those tenants are kind of SOL if you know what I mean. Yeah. So it's it's uh, it's a real challenge. Yeah. And that's kind of informed some of our deals in terms of like what we're targeting. We right. like big, flexible campus type yeah, sites right. where um, I have cash flow in place that's not going to like blow anybody's Doors hair off, back completely, but, but it's cash flow. Right. And that allows us to be patient and tactical uh, yeah. and flexible. Yeah. Okay. And because of the size of the, these campuses, uh, there's number of different ways to kind of skin the cat. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll kind of wind it down. Um, you a, a reader? You a book guy? You had more of like a TV? Like you, you know, I used to read shows. a ton and then I started my own business and, uh, you know, it's definitely more fun, but you work way more hours and uh, you definitely take work home with you. My routine is uh, I try to come home as early as possible when I'm coaching sports. You know, I, I got to do a practice, so. Most days I'm leaving the office like three thirty yep. in the spring. Yeah, I come home, uh, you know, coach whatever I have to coach, and help help the wife put the kids to bed. And you know, I'm not done putting people to bed till like nine. I know. So if there's I like know. something I have to read, I'm like reading it like yeah. you know, nine to midnight. And then I need like an hour of like decompression, so like I'll watch like Netflix till like one in the morning. You got a good show you're into, or what? I was um, gonna say, if you're not a book guy, you're a show guy. Like I'm not a book guy, right? Demela's the book guy. I am all about the. You, you know, know what good I really like? I like Prime. Okay. And there's documentaries all over Prime that I I really enjoy. Okay. Um, so I watched one on Niagara Falls the other oh, day. Oh, nice. There you go. I like uh, history documentaries. I rewatch like Ken Burns documentaries all the time. Okay. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I also watch like a, a good some good fiction. Yeah, like Schwarzenegger shows not terrible. Really? Yeah, the Fubar or whatever. I haven't heard about that. Yeah, All that right. one's on Netflix. Yeah, so then like I'm in bed at one and uh, helping the wife get the kids ready to school at seven thirty, and the whole thing starts all over again. Yeah, and then when I get to work, you know, it's less real estate that I'm touching, and it's more just kind of helping people solve problems. Yep. So, um, all right. Jay Hirsch, managing partner, Jumbo Capital Incorporated. Awesome to have you with us. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you to our, our audience for tuning in to this episode of Empowered Returns. And we will catch you next time. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Empowered Returns. If you're a forward-thinking real estate investor or developer looking for actionable advice that will help you generate market-beating returns, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. I'm Mike DeMello with Charles Gate, and I'd love to connect on LinkedIn and further the conversation for any specific questions you may have. Thank you for listening.